I've got Dr. Mike Gustafson and George Watson with me. We'll look back over what has been in 2020 and what we can look forward to in 2021. This is Dinger Derby. Welcome to Dinger Derby, the official podcast of RedRaiderDugout.com. The only website completely devoted to Texas Tech baseball. Join Keith Patrick twice a week for team news, guests, ranking updates, and game reports. We'll be hitting taters with the Red Raiders from opening weekend all the way through Omaha. This is Dinger Derby. Well, welcome into Dinger Derby, the only podcast devoted 100% to Texas Tech Red Raider baseball. I'm your host, Keith Patrick, and I'm joined today by Dr. Mike Gustafson and George Watson. I'm going to talk a little bit about this Red Raider program. We've got more to cover than normal, fellas. Usually, we come do the fall recap, and the history ended in July. Unfortunately for us, the history ended last March. And so, to recap a little bit for everybody, uh, Red Raiders come back from Mississippi State, preparing to open the Big 12 play against West Virginia at home. That game is canceled, and then all hell breaks loose, and, and the whole world is, gets canceled, basically. And so I remember at one point we talked, we realized that we were 11 months away from more baseball, and it was about to be a very, very long break. But now we're less than a week away. And so as we've gone through, we've seen a lot of things change around the sport, a lot of restrictions loosen from the standpoint of scholarships and things like that. So to kind of recap a few things, the roster limits are gone this season. Uh, seniors were already given eligibility, but everybody basically got their year back. And so George can tell us a little bit more about what the other teams in the Big 12 look like. But then in addition to that, you've had some easing but not changing of scholarships. So everybody knows 11.7 scholarships in college baseball. That didn't change, but the minimum of 25% scholarship per student was eased, as was from the Big 12 side, the uh, conference roster was expanded also. So just a lot of differences and different nuance for these guys to deal with from a coaching standpoint to kind of mess with all that. So, But we did not walk into the fall with 75 dudes. And so we did get to see between us all of the fall practices. So I want to talk a little bit about that and just kind of what we've seen from some new guys, what we saw look a little bit different. Of course, we've seen COVID kind of come through the team at different times, and that's to be expected. You know, guys living together and contact tracing and all that kind of stuff going on. But let's just start off there. We got into the fall. We had fall practices. None of it was publicized, but it wasn't closed either. So we did get to see it, and uh, there was a red-black series. The final game wasn't played, but all of it did happen for the most part. So what did we see in the fall from this team, and how was it a little bit different from maybe a normal year? Whoever wants to jump in. What I would say is the – calendar was so much different this year, or a little bit different. I think everything back a couple of weeks. Uh, ball ball ended right before Thanksgiving, and relatively speaking, we were able to get what I would consider a fairly normal fall relative to what we heard around the summer. Uh, contact, you know, those contacts, and that's what, but, uh, and so baseball, but I would say it as you know, as it goes around the country, several teams not even having fall ball. I think ours was fairly productive. That probably jumped out the most uh, was probably freshman as a single I think that you were saying, Gus, that the freshman pitchers really stood out there, and they were they were yeah. pretty impressive. And we saw them work a lot, certainly early in fall ball as well. Yep, no doubt. Uh, they they were largely. Helped. Yes, and they were very good. And it looks like a talent. And uh, in the ball ball, Coach Stadlock compared the class with Henry Martin. Not guys in there that are going to come out as quick as Martin did, but uh, nevertheless, a talent. That's kind of what I got out of it was that he was really high on this freshman pitching class, like Gus said, comparing it a lot to, to some of the ones that, that have been some of the deepest and able to come in and pitch really well as freshmen. So I think he's excited about that. You know, And like Gus said, you know, not knowing what other teams did or what they kind of went through with the COVID, 
But we also know, and, and Coach Tadlock said this, you know, wrapping up the fall, that there, there was had like six or six position players available because they were having to go through COVID protocols and things like that. So there's a lot of guys that missed about a two to three week span there in being able to get some work because of COVID. So you don't know how that's going to affect, you know, preparation. Everything in baseball we know is about repetition and, and, and practicing and, and things like that. So you just kind of wonder how they were able to deal with that, translate that, you know, coming into the spring, have some guys ready as well. So, and, and I agree with you guys. So, there, yeah, there was a lot of time lost really across the country. The Red Raiders, they generally were able to get practices in. It's not uncommon to see coaches in the field and, you know, former players help out and family in the field. And so we saw, we saw a lot of Ben Tadlock over the fall, but that's not uncommon anyway in the fall. And it happened a little bit more this year. But that's an interesting point because right now, as we sit, I think I drove to my office to record today and it's about 16 degrees outside and we're expecting extreme negative wind chills over the next couple days and uh, single digit temperatures so you lost time in the fall now you're losing time in the spring and you're less than a week away from walking into a tournament that has 60 percent of the top 10 all beating each other up in the first weekend of the season so is everybody in the same boat from this preparation standpoint? You know, should fans be worried that Tech's behind, or is everybody a little bit behind kind of across the country? You know, the weather that we've got here is the same weather that's affecting Arkansas, because I know my best right. friend in Arkansas has, has been tweeting that it's, you know, 10 degrees, and, you know, and, and I'm sure it's about the same in the state of Mississippi as well. So it's really that kind of deal that we've always had the advantage of welcoming a northern team in that first week of the season. Right. Now we're in that same boat that when we welcome a Northern team, we know that chances that they've been outside for more than a few days at a time are slim to none. Well, now Tech hasn't been outside probably since, what, Wednesday? We're recording this on the Saturday before the first game. Sure. Tech hasn't been outside probably since about Wednesday and probably won't get outside, you know, get back on the field maybe until they go to Arlington at this point. Who knows? Right. So I think everybody's going to be in that same boat. The issue is that Arkansas and Mississippi State, at least, you know, the three SEC teams have some sort of baseball-dedicated indoor facility mm. to be able to work at. Now, I'm sure Tech can go over to the Sports Performance Center. They can close the doors maybe when the track meet's not going on, get some work done there. But that's the only advantage that I see that, that those schools have is that they have those dedicated indoor baseball-only facilities that they can go work in. But still, there's no substitute for going outside. Tech can still get its pitchers some work in, in simulated games, in, in, in the nets, in the cages, things like that. But there's just no there's no substitute for being outside and seeing live baseball and seeing live pitching. Right, playing and getting into situational baseball and, yeah, yeah. getting – getting pitchers then into some innings and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely with you. I like the I like the facility pitch though. Like first part of the season, we want a dome or at least an <laughs> indoor practice facility. I like it. I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> so as we went through that fall, we talked about some of those and what Gus was was getting to earlier. We talked about some of those freshman guys. Let's mention some of those names that fans will be looking towards and seeing yeah. maybe a little bit of this year as we kind of run into the roster there was a lot of changes on the roster let's talk about some new guys and what you guys are kind of expecting out of them as we start yeah I think this start position wise really that's where this team is the deepest as far as its returning talent and things like that so there's not a whole lot of new position guys that I think will be able to break into the lineup one guy that could that I think we were all kind of impressed with that we saw in the fall was Drew Woodcox. He's a freshman infielder from Lamar High School in Houston. We saw him playing third base. We saw him playing shortstop. We saw him playing second base. I think he might have even played a little first base. So I think he showed his versatility and showed a, a pretty good approach at the plate, some good discipline, a good swing, and able to drive the ball out there. And then I think the other position player we saw was outfielder named uh, Sam Hunt. He's a he's a freshman from Flowermount Marcus. And we saw him, you know, make some good plays. And, and that's the thing. With, there's a couple of injuries out there uh, right now that are opening some doors for some guys, mostly in the outfield. And so that's where we got to see those two guys mainly. But the most of the concentration of the freshman class is in the pitching. And so you had guys like, uh, you know, left-hander named Nick Gorby who looked like a real bulldog. Two guys, Levi Wells and Hayde Key, that I thought at times showed really, really good stuff 
They've just got to be a little bit more consistent with it. And you got a guy, Chase Hampton, freshman from Kilgore, big body, you know, really, really good looking stuff. And then, you know, then there were a couple of surprises. I, you know, I, I was really impressed with a kid named Matthew Luna, left-hander out of out of San Antonio. And then I think kind of maybe the surprise for everybody was a left-handed kid from uh, Mesquite named Jamie Hitt. You know, you're mentioning five, six, seven guys. I think gives Tim the idea that this is probably the best pitching class that he's got in, in several years there. Yeah, I'm with you there, George. And you mentioned the fielders a real a little bit. Another guy we saw play quite a bit was Braden Runyon, and he's a JUCO transfer, pretty heralded guy. Came out of Walter State. He's a he's from Kentucky. Right. Physically looks the part. He's six foot two twenty five, very athletic. We saw him play third base. We saw him play some right field. Maybe the bat's not quite ready yet, depending on the pitching he's facing. But another guy that that's out there. But yeah, I agree with you on Woodcox. Saw him a ton. Very athletic. Appeared to have a green light on the base paths. I mean, really a guy that looks like he's going to do something. And and that hole that may be open, injury related. Dylan Carter, who was your left fielder last year as a freshman, had shoulder surgery. And this is no secret. And the last we heard from Coach Tadlock, availability for him somewhere around April. And, you know, we saw him in a sling and some of that still in the fall. So hopefully that's earlier, but that's the last that, that we were made aware of it. But I think that there's definitely some pieces in there. But, yeah, you're right. It's a very pitcher-heavy class. And when you talk about the heralded guys and who's come in and the names that you've heard of, like Brandon Pettix, generally they're going to be pitchers that are coming in and, and potentially making a difference. And I'm not saying these are all you know potential Friday night starters, but there's definitely going to be some guys in the mix. And let's talk rotation. Is there potential for a new face or a freshman pitcher that's that's breaking into the rotation early in this season? You talk about a transfer or, or a new face that might be in there. I think the main one you're talking about in there is uh, Brandon Birdsell, transfer. He's a A&M kickback. He was A&M his first year, went to JUCO at San Jacinto, had a real good year, and came here. And I think he's probably the most likely candidate to kind of break into the rotation at, at this point. And there's another transfer that I don't know if he's going to be in the rotation. I think he may be more of a long relief guy. Is Patrick Monteverdi, a left-handed. He's a senior transfer out of Seton Hill, not Seton Hall. Seton Hill, which I think is a Division Three school, if I'm not mistaken. But he, you know, he's come in and had a real good fall, kind of established himself. I think we're probably looking at him as, as being in that long relief role uh, at this point. And then you know, you got a sophomore named Chase Webster out of uh, Chandler Gilbert uh, Community College in Arizona that I think is going to play a key role. I don't know if he'll be in the rotation as well just because you've got established guys like Micah Dallas and Mason Montgomery and guys like that. But if you're talking rotation, I think the first new name you're going to see probably is Brandon Bursell. Yeah, I would be surprised if we don't see Monteverdi in that rotation somewhere. Now, Mason Montgomery, uh, I would have told you that we would see Micah Dallas or Bursell in a, and possibly even both of them in sort of that two to three inning reliever key inning type role. And now there's probably with the news of Hunter Dobbins missing the year uh there's a decent chance that one or both of those guys could be in the rotation and i'll be curious to see how that goes i mean typically the ability to watch the last inner squad the last weekend of inner squad scrimmages prior to the season would tell you a whole lot about yeah. who's getting used and when because they're starting to set the rotation for next weekend and we're, we're obviously not going to get to do that because they're as you guys discussed they're throwing those bullpens and practicing indoors probably in uh if they can't get in the sports performance center, a lot of times they used to go over to the indoor soccer facility because it's turf and yeah. they can hit ground balls and handle the baseball and soccer's not using it on weekends in February. So I, I think, um, you know, that, that'll be the um, curious part to see is which one of those guys stay in sort of the high leverage innings role versus which ones move to the starting rotation. And it really is going to be an interesting thing to see. But I, I would imagine that Monteverdi being a veteran guy, and you see his, he's got a three-pitch, even a four-pitch mix. He just profiles really well as a starting pitcher. And uh, I would be shocked if he's not a part of that rotation. And of course, we'll have a five-game week right out of the, the shoot with three the weekend in Arlington and then two midweek games on Tuesday, Wednesday. So we'll see. We'll get to see soon enough how deep he wants to go with the starting pitching. Right. Gus, could this be a deal where next weekend in Arlington is basically like the last weekend of scrimmage where everybody's going to throw three innings no matter what, just because well, that's that's yeah. as far as their tolerance is built up? Probably right. Somebody asked him that question a month or so ago, 
And he talked about how that first weekend, everybody's still hovering around at a 60, 75 pitch count. And so, and I imagine that's going to be true for everybody. You know, Ole Miss has two guys in their rotation that are top 100 draft guys. I mean, you know, highly regarded prospects that it just doesn't make a lot of sense to rush anybody. Now, if you're really efficient, 75 pitches can get you through six innings, you know, so we'll see. But I would imagine, George, that the answer to your question is we're going to see a ton of dudes because the other thing is normally I don't think the 60 to 75 pitch count limit isn't is anything unusual, but the idea of those being high leverage pitches in a normal scenario where, you know, this time last year it was Houston Baptist and Northern Colorado, you know, this is going to be on a much bigger stage in a big league park against top 10 opponents and who knows, 10 to 15,000 fans. Yeah. You know, just, and so it, that 60 to 75 pitches may have a different feel to it than the 60 or 60 to 75 pitches at home versus Northern Colorado this time last year. So, uh, but yeah, I'm sure we're going to see a cast of thousands really from all all six teams down there. So to recap a little bit before we hop into talking about the weekend, guys. So Austin Becker, who was in your rotation last year, he had Tommy John surgery in June of 2020. Jacob Rostowski, a big left-handed reliever for you. He had Tommy John surgery in December, late December of 2020. And then, as you mentioned, Gus, and this was not in the article on RedRaiderDugout.com because it just happened in the last few days. Hunter Dobbins had a UCL injury as well, and Dobbins had been getting up to 97-98, and he ends up with Tommy John surgery as well. I feel like Dobbins was probably going to be your Friday night starter, at least here early, you know, maybe earning that position and figured to be a pretty big contributor, so a road for him to figure out what he's doing next. But looking back to last season, because I think this is probably fans' biggest question right now, especially those that know some of these names. We felt like, walking into Big 12 play, that there was going to be a shuffle in the rotation and on the infield. We thought that Jace Young would probably move to second base. We had that kind of conversation. And then we also thought that Micah Dallas may be back into Friday nights. And so, who do we expect to see coming out Fridays? And, and Gus, I know you're kind of back and forth on this. Is Micah Dallas a rotation guy, or is he coming back out of the pin here early in the season? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And to his credit, he's done both. You know, he pitched on Fridays as a freshman, and uh, and certainly down the stretch as a freshman, similar to what Gingry and Martin had done, uh, which was down the stretch. By the time conference play got here, they'd really established themselves in those high-end weekend roles and and uh, Micah did it then in 2019 for a team that went to Omaha and and then last year he was pitching really high leverage relief roles and and had thrown I don't know it was he was up in the teens in his innings um, not not one inning type closer roles but coming in in the sixth and seventh inning and finishing ball games and was really outstanding he had a crazy walks to strikeout ratio you know i don't remember exactly what it was it was like 20 to 3 in 16 innings or something so he's done both and and uh you know just just in the in the couple of inner squads that we've seen over the last two weeks he's pitched on fridays but that doesn't necessarily mean he wouldn't be in the reliever role or the starter role he'd pitched 15 and two-thirds his his era was a 0.57 and he had a uh, 23 to one. one yeah there you go there you go that that's pretty good <laughs> yeah that's all right yeah <laughs> that, that'll get you by yeah <laughs> you could do that 75 pitches yeah so there's lots of comparisons lots of gingery martin comparisons that we've kind of said throughout starting this podcast and i've also heard and myself used a comparison to 2017 as far as the talent on the team and and hopefully the outcome isn't the same although you're right gus we we hosted and won the Big Twelve, so you know <laughs> it's all it's all lining. it's all it's just spoiled perspectives of you know Omaha or nothing. But um, yes. super talented team, kind of in the history of looking back through these years. You know, is that the right comp? Do you think? And I mean, you, what are your who are your guys then that that are filling those roles, particularly on the mound? It's interesting because you know a lot a lot of new guys pitched with a lot of veteran position players in 2016 and now the new guys in 2016 at one point the entire weekend rotation was freshmen and martin gingery and then harpenau at the very first 
think Shatter pitched some on Sundays, you know, and, and this, the Sunday thing was kind of a moving target, but there was a point at which that was a all freshman starting rotation. I don't think we'll have that this year, although those guys are probably talented enough, you know, <laughs> Hampton and Levi probably are talented enough to carry that type role and maybe a couple others, but definitely some new faces. Cause I think Monteverdi will be part of that week in rotation, but the anchor could very well be, Micah, as we've talked about. And so I don't know, in some ways, there's some aspects of it that I feel like it's 2016, which I'd be fine with, because in some ways that was the most dominant of the teams, at least with regard to what they did in Big 12 play, a 19 and 5 record, and then yeah. clinched the Big 12 championship, as I recall, during their open week during finals. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it was OSU that was in second place, and they, they lost a game or something. Something happened in one of the other games, like, well, we're the Big 12 champs. Yep. We're going to celebrate by uh, the guys are going over to take their English finals. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, we, we, I was so hoping like, well, I'd rather we'd be able to win like on that Thursday game and be able to celebrate in the park. But the, it was in a sense, it was anticlimactic if a big 12 championship can be anticlimactic. But I've been thinking about this, this conversation and feeling like the, in some ways it's the 2016, but this, that said, this ball club, obviously, as you said, the only thing is, is Brian last year's team, but I don't <laughs> know that it's as explosive group was with Nestlone and those Gutierrez. Gotcha. We, you went a little robotic slow for us there, so we got like <laughs> a really slow bride. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So let's go through the field a little bit here and kind of run our way around and talk about who we might expect to see out there and where they're going to be playing. So Cal Conley's gotten a little bit of national love. Dylan Noisy's gotten some national love. Stillwell at first, Conley at short, and then also Jace Young at second. And that was on the D1 baseball power rankings by position list. You've got some preseason All-Americans, Dylan Noisy, preseason Big 12 Player of the Year. So, you know, there's some assumptions out there about where guys are going to be. But starting at catcher, let's work our way around. You know, who's going to be where and, and – Catcher is a little bit of a different story, I think, and, and I've brought it up with you guys. Braxton Fulford is kind of your automatic, but you've got Nate Romback and then you've got Cole Stillwell, but there's no other names on that list as far as catcher on the team, you know, as far as standalone guys that are always catching. Yeah, those are definitely the one, two, and three catchers. There's no, there's no doubt about it because it, it, at least from what we've seen in the January, sure, there was a couple other guys that were involved last fall that aren't there this spring. And that's what we've seen. Those are the only three guys that we've seen catch. In, in the January and February scrimmages. Yeah, exactly. I mean, knock on wood, I, I think people some might be worried about not having four catchers on the roster and only having three, but knock on wood, you know, uh, Braxton's been pretty pretty durable Yes, uh, for everything that he's had to go through over the last three years. I mean, what, you know, what two years ago, he caught pretty much almost every inning of every game yeah. uh, two years ago. And was and, probably you know, and pretty think, whipped by Omaha as – yeah, I would, I would yeah, say he, part of that too. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know. So I've got confidence that that he can last the season. But the thing is, he he won't have to catch every inning this year. Uh, you know, because I, I think Nate Romback will see quite a bit of time behind the plate, and the Cole Steelwell is as if one of those two gets injured. We talked about this earlier. I remember what was it about two thousand five, two thousand six, when Matt Smith got injured for Tech, and he was pretty much the only guy that had caught. And he was pretty much the only guy, only catcher on the on the roster at that point. So you had to get a guy. I think his name was Tyler Reeves, who was pretty much a first baseman who had maybe caught four or five years ago in high school, and he suddenly became your starting catcher for the rest of the year. And you can only guess how bad how how that went. So uh, <laughs> George, remember uh, the other one was Casey, um, oh, Casey from Midland. Um, that guy, uh, Zachary, player. Yeah, Casey yes, Zachary. Casey Zachary. Yeah, moved from the bullpen, a pitcher, to catching. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Not so, ideal. Not so, ideal. Yeah. So I'm okay. I'm I'm not as concerned. Maybe some people are with the catching situation at this point. Right. Now, who who knows where anything can stand a month from now? But I think going into the season, I'm not as concerned about catchers. Maybe some other people are. When George says some other people, he means me. And what, <laughs> and really what and and my concern that I've texted these guys about and it's not like total fear and worry it's just a matter of in the embarrassment of riches that is a team with probably two top 25 rosters 
if there's anywhere you're thin, I would argue that's it. And and I don't mean that Nate Rombach isn't a capable catcher. I mean, you just don't have another guy that would be a full-time guy potentially where you have guys probably at every other position that you could plug in another guy and feel like he's also a full-time player, you know, in that role. That's that's really what where I'm getting to, but speaking of those guys and two of the same guys, Cole Stillwell pretty much locked down first base in 2020, and we saw him work really hard to get there, and he was hitting well also. Number 30 on that D1 baseball list, but do we feel like there could be some others work in? We saw TJ Rumfield, who's no longer with the team, work in a little bit early before as a potential replacement out there, and and now you have Stillwell. Is is Rombach pushing for that role? Is there a Parker Kelly element? Is there somebody else that we may see there a little bit? Yeah, we saw a lot of guys. We saw a lot of different guys there in the fall and even in the early spring. And, you know, if, if Cole has any pressure on him at first base, I think it's defensively, you know, and so that we've seen really several guys run through there. Runyon's been over there a little bit this spring in the scrimmages. Woodcox, uh, Nate has done that a bunch. And remember in 2020, Nate Romvet caught basically – one of every three weekend games opposite right. Braxton. And so I wouldn't be one bit surprised to see that going in. And I think he probably receives as well as Braxton. There's a, there's a gap in the throwing and that's, what's pretty obvious about it. But, um, that thing is going to take a while. I think to settle down Cole struggles defensively, his balls aren't getting dug out, you know, aren't getting picked and those kind of things. And and the other thing we, we really haven't talked about, and maybe getting ahead of ourselves, but it's how interrelated everything is. The guy we've seen play a ton of shortstop, especially since we've come back, well, really all through the fall answering, and he's not pitching this year, is Kurt Wilson. Kurt's getting a ton of reps at shortstop. Hmm. Kyle's been out through some of these scrimmages the last couple weeks, and so when Kyle comes back, what happens? Does Kurt move to third? Does Kyle move to second? Does Jace move to first? I think valid questions. I don't know that we'll see that play out in Arlington next week. But if balls are getting thrown in the dirt, struggling with it, or bunt, you know, bunt, just any any kind of thing, if we have struggles at first base, I think Cole's bat stays in the lineup. But could some of those options be explored? When you go watch an inner squad in January, and February, you've seen all of those guys doing stuff, moving around the infield. For sure, I think the challenging thing for Tadlock is going to be you want to have the bats of Stillwell and Braxton and Nate all in the lineup as much as possible. So if if you have to substitute a catcher, how do you do that if all three of them are in the lineup? If Nate's at first base, if, if Cole's at DH, do you erase your DH and put Cole back there? Or do you you know erase your DH and put Cole at first base and move Nate to, to catcher if you have to? So I think there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic there that Tim is going to have to figure out in the game if he wants to substitute at certain points, if he's got all three of those guys in the lineup. And if he doesn't want to have to do that, then one of those guys is going to be sitting on the bench. So we feel like it's Cole's job to lose, but that there is a potential for some musical chairs going on and and that happening kind of all over the place. I think it's also not a bad thought, and this happened a lot in football, you know, at every level, is just to have guys with experience at every position you can get it, not knowing what COVID brings you know, throughout the season and having guys ready to hop in when they need to. So if that's Cole's position and knowing that there could be other guys working through there, then move around to second base. Is that Jace Young's position? Is that a Kurt Wilson? Is this a useless exercise because we don't have any feeling at all? (laughs) (laughs) Could very well be. It really could. Because the one thing we probably haven't seen much of, if at all, other than a little fill-in stuff, is Jace Young at third base. And Jace played a lot there last year. He's been almost exclusively at second base, but we also saw them dabble with him at first last year against Rice, and he made a couple really good plays, and that's why I'm thinking it's in the back of their minds. I'm kind of with Gus there, I and I think Jace is probably gets the first nod at second base. You've got to get his bat in the lineup somewhere. We talk about Kurt Wilson, and that just goes to show you the wealth that this team has around the infield that Kurt Wilson, I think, could probably start for three-quarters of the rest of the teams in this league and we're trying to figure out who's he going to beat out to get a position on this team. So, yeah, I just don't know if Kurt yet is as consistent enough with the bat. I think he's good enough defensively. I just don't know if he's good enough offensively to knock anybody else out of the lineup at this point. He very well could be your DH starting the season. But at this point, like and like you said, you know, you don't know 
who you know what you're going to go through with COVID protocols this time next week. Right. You know who could be in, who could be out. You know it's 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 a crapshoot at this point. Well, and that's the important point, George. It's not anybody being bad at baseball. It's just a matter of can you put it all together at the right time to knock a guy out of yep. the lineup. And if you can hit, we'll find a place for you to stand kind of mentality. And I think we've lived in a Red Raider team for a while where there's some guys that automatically have a role. You know Cameron Warren was going to be at first base. You knew where Brian Klein was going to be. There was a change there with Josh Young on the left side of the infield, but you knew that that was a potential one way or the other and it was going to be high level. What I'm hearing you guys saying, nobody is locked in right now as far as owning an infield position other than Braxton Fulford as far as there may be more experimentation just with lineup this year as far as getting some guys moved around and seeing who fits best and I would throw Parker Kelly in that mix who we've seen be plenty successful defensively you know the bat's always the question and we saw him hit what probably the biggest home run I remember seeing at Danlaw Field in the fall Uh, it was a massive shot over the clock and on the uh on the scoreboard. So that's a question too. Is that bat going? Because he's certainly been around and put in some time in the program as well. I think yeah, that's, that a, that's a bat yeah. that if he's going, I think he's getting the start at third base, it, you know, because we know what he can do defensively. And if the, if the bat can translate from fall to, to spring and translate into games, which, you know what, he's a junior right now and it's time for him to take the step up. Then I think that locks you down on third base and, and makes you even stronger there. But Again, it's that consistency deal of being able to do it on a daily basis and doing it from game to game, inning to inning, pitch to pitch. Yeah, I, I agree with George. I think if the bat provides a, a level of uh, production, the the defensive record is there. His reputation among the coaching staff, I think, is that he's good defensively. And so I'm really curious to see how that goes. You know, and, and I, I've always thought, too, that one part of the evaluation process, you know, we usually talk about chopping the season up into several parts, and certainly there's fall ball, and within fall ball, there's the regular scrimmages, and then red-black has a little bit of a spotlight on it. And then another phase of the calendar is late January, early February scrimmages because it's the last thing coaches are seeing, and it's where decision points are being made about the roster going into the first games, and then you've got non-conference, conference, and then and then postseason play is obviously the key parts of it. But, you know, who's been hitting lately? Who's been swinging it well in inter-squad? Those are the kind of questions I'm sure that the coaches are looking at if they're trying to decide, hey, is Parker Kelly our third baseman? Well, has he been hitting lately or not? You know, and I think is a, is a key part of it. And I'm with George. You know, he's a veteran guy. He's a fourth-year guy. Of course, a junior eligibility. They've all, they all got last year back. But... Is he ready to string together some level of consistency offensively in a way that they can ride him in? You know, he'd be an interesting guy to have down toward the bottom of the order because he'll flash that power that we saw a home run hit over the scoreboard, opposite field, by the way, right-handed hitter bouncing yes. one off the top of the scoreboard and right center. Then and, and yes, literally bounced yeah, on the top. Yeah, like yeah, like like John McMillan never did that. You know, John, no. John McMillan never <laughs> hit one over the scoreboard. It went off the top of the score. But so we're talking about real big power. But can he flash? Can he flash that in a consistent, you know, way that he could hit 260 or 270 and hit 10 home runs and be good defensively at third and hit down toward the bottom of the order? That would be legit, and it would really solidify some things because the other guys we've seen work at third: Runyon, Drew Baker, you know, and 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 even Noisy, <laughs> which which then throws throws another layer of complication in that if Noisy ended up playing at third base, what would happen in the outfield? And just, again, speaks to all the weapons. It's hard to, hard to kind of figure when you think about Dylan Carter not being an early season factor in the outfield. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And we did see a lot of Noisy in fall 2019. Yep. We saw a lot of him in the infield, and then he ended up you know outfield all through 2020. But And I forgot to mention in my, in my recap, I thought of it when I said TJ Rumfeld's name earlier, you had four guys leave the program in the midst of all this as well. Bo Willis, who was a catcher on your roster before, went to Weatherford Junior College. Uh, Tanner Otrimba transferred to Arizona. TJ Rumfield transferred to Virginia Tech. And Jared Cushing, who you hadn't seen a lot of but was kind of a backup second baseman out of Illinois, if I remember right, he went to Xavier. So there you are right there. One guy you never saw a whole lot of and one that was a pretty big contributor in different roles that went on to other Power 5 programs. You know, So that kind of speaks to what we've been saying, the the embarrassment of riches on the team. So, okay, we've talked a ton about the infield. Let's move to the outfield. So, biggest question 
in my mind, at least to start, Dylan Carter is out at least for the foreseeable future, recovering from the surgery he had. So left field, what are we expecting out there? Well, speaking of injuries, I think one of the candidates we would normally include in that group is Cody Masters. And Cody had uh, just, again, in the in the recent scrimmages over the last couple of weeks, we'd seen him in the ballpark and street clothes. And so there's an injury lingering for him or something that he's dealing with as well. And so I, at least with my eyeballs and what's happening during the midweek workouts and and hopefully what's happening today, you know, wherever they are (laughs) hitting inside somewhere and, you know, (laughs) hitting inside somewhere and then chasing ground balls over in the soccer facility or whatever, is he, is he part of that? But I I think we're talking about a fourth year player there and, and a guy who's, proven commodity he he would certainly be in that conversation in left field Marshock is certainly in that conversation in left field or right field and you know Max is I think the, the same challenges present themselves for Max if there's contact and he's getting on base he's a weapon to be feared and uh, if the strikeouts start really creeping up and he's struggling to make contact then then he'll be in the, in sort of that that role that Zach Davis was in which was an outstanding role uh, and he was great at it and Max would be that as sort of a tactical weapon a defensive defensive option late and a come in and steal a key base and a pinch running role hopefully for Max the offense comes this year which really is going to be driven by contact and he can string it together and play a full season in one of those outfield spots and let that speed work I mean, for me, surely that conversation left field or if we could even flip it and say either left or right Surely that's a Drew Baker yeah. and Woodcox conversation right now. I think just depending based on injury, yeah. maybe Kurt Wilson, depending on how the infield shakes yeah, out. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Now we haven't seen Kurt in the outfield at all this this go around. Part of that due to the fact that we've seen Conley walking around in street clothes these first couple weekends, and so again we don't know where that is. Cal was taking ground balls in last week's practice, so hopefully he's getting closer to participating. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It's I think it's a similar list. I think there, there's one list of guys for who could play center field, and it's mostly noisy unless noisy moves to third base or something should that be a need. But we could probably start with noisy in center field. Then the rest of that list is in under the category of corner outfielders. Drew Baker's on that list. Obviously, Drew is uh, if he's not at third base. But Because uh, remember, Drew did that a lot last year. <laughs> is that every player on the team? Yeah. He's going to do this unless he's playing third exactly. base. Exactly, <laughs> and Drew, Drew did that a lot last year, and he was leading off and doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, although he was doing it more in right field, but I think the, the bat in the lineup is something that, that we were, that we'll see, you know, Drew in there somewhere, and it probably could very well be, you know, one of those corner outfield spots opposite maybe Mar- Max Marshak to start with. Runyon's been running around in those corner outfield spots as well. And, you know, and I'll mention Runyon, too, uh, from the fall, and we saw him make some really nice plays at third base. We saw him with some mistakes. We saw him have a mistake in right field that was kind of a lack of experience kind of mistake. And then we see him make a beautiful, you know, sliding save in foul territory, you know, an inning later. And so a guy that certainly seems to have the tools but maybe needs to put a little bit more time on the field. At least that's, you know, my read on it. Maybe you guys disagree. It'll be a classic case of if he hits, they'll find a place for him to stand. Yeah. And, and early, early in the fall, he was doing big damage because he's got some pop. And he quieted down late in the fall. And so now that that evaluation process comes back. Like I said, a couple of weeks ago, we saw him in the mix at first base a little bit. And, how, you know, how comfortable are they with him? You know, he, he right. had him do the list of corner outfield slash first base slash DH candidates. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long list. Long, long list. And so we, George, did you want to jump in on corner outfield? Yeah, I, my thinking is, and I, I may be totally off, but I, to me, it seems that left field is going to be determined first by what you do in right field. If you're comfortable enough with putting Braden Runyon in right field, then I can see them maybe moving Drew Baker to left field. To me, this is all going to be determined by who's hitting. You know, we've in the past we've done, you know, who's who's the best defender out there, who saves you runs. Right now, there's so much to me hitting. So if Braden Runyon is hitting and you're comfortable enough with him defensively in in right field, then to me that opens Drew Baker up in left field. If not, then Drew Baker's in right field, and then you go with a you know a, a Max Marshock, maybe Kurt Wilson. You know, I doubt you'd see Sam Hunt out there as a freshman, but you very well could. You know, he, I thought he had some good plays and had some good offensive days at the plate. So to me, it's all kind of right field determines left field at this point. 
Gotcha. And yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. You know, it's not like we're talking about good decisions versus bad decisions defensively. It's just a matter of who's hitting and how it all is going to shake out. And I'm sure we'll see it change quite a bit. Right. Before we jump into talking about Arlington, and I had been thinking about, you know, I'd like to hear from each of you guys who's not getting enough conversation or notice. And to start that off, in my head, that had been Cal Conley, and then he was named to the uh, Bobby Bragan <laughs> slugger watch list along with Dylan Noisy, uh, which is great. But there were times that we saw him, and, and I know all of us talked about this a little in the fall, there are times that I would have used the word elite, the way he was playing shortstop and how smooth and comfortable he looked there. But you know, who else do you guys have, and, or it could be him if you have more to say about him, it just isn't getting enough pub or notice where you know, really noisy, and I would argue even Jace Young maybe even more so kind of suck a lot of the air out of the room as far as the national media talking about them, not that they do anything wrong in that. Yeah, I'm not sort of that. I'm going to go ahead and say Braxton full. I think Braxton has a, an interesting opportunity next weekend playing opposite. I think it's Opitz for Arkansas mm-hmm. is, is a highly regarded catcher nationally, you know, in terms of his catch and throw ability and those kind of things. And I'll be fascinated to see if, if Braxton flashes what I've seen, which is some one eight and one nine pop times in live scrimmages these last couple of weeks and throws a couple of guys out or back pick somebody or something in a way that people go, Hey, yeah, look at that guy. And, uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of times those kind of preseason decisions and, and watch lists and those kind of things. And I understand this because I'm involved in the process as, um, with the old reward, but a lot of times those kind of conversations are driven more by offensive numbers than defensive numbers, because a lot of times defense is, is a matter of reputation. It's hard to quantify mm-hmm. some of the things you see. You can look at it and go, that guy made a zillion errors, but it, well, you know what well, you don't know by looking at a typical put out assist errors stat line is, does he have any range? Can he make the tough play? You know, all those sorts of things. You know, we don't have a fielding Bible level of college baseball defensive analysis available to us as selectors. And so Braxton doesn't flash huge offensive numbers in a way that, that everyone wants to rush him on the All-American list and all. But that, that's a guy that's been a three-year starter on high-level performers, high-level right. performing teams. And so, uh, you know, I, I'll be interested if, if he has a good week next weekend, especially throwing and flashes what I believe to be is a really good arm, as good as arm as, as I recall us having behind the plate at Tech in a long time, what that does for him, what that does for his, his national reputation, because next week's going to be a big, big, big stage. Well, also, and a guy that not just academic all Big 12, which a lot of these guys are, but a guy that in the 2019 College World Series won a, a national academic award, I mean, for his excellence in the classroom, which I'm not saying that with tongue in cheek in any way. I mean, that's a difficult thing to do as a division one college athlete. And it also speaks to who he is. And I mean, if you're a smart guy, you have the ability to be a smart baseball guy too. And I think he brings a lot of that to the table for the team. Yeah, no doubt, especially in the role he's in behind the plate and uh, a high level student, uh, a finance major. And I think he's going to graduate in May, I mean, like, as in get his diploma, graduate. Yeah, it's absolutely worth mentioning. Lubbock kid, Lubbock Monterey, you know, wonderful parents here, you know, locally, business owners and that type thing. It's just a, it's just a neat story. He's a good guy to root for. Absolutely. You got somebody, George? Yeah, I'm going to throw out a guy that's on the pitching staff, and I've been a fan of his since he stepped on campus, and I saw him in the fall and, and saw him two years ago, 2019, in the spring, and that's Andrew Devine. You know, kid is – 5'10", a buck 50 soaking wet, but he hits the mound and he is absolutely 100% fearless out there. He goes after hitters, he pitch mix, and we saw that, the epitome of that, when Tech went to Tallahassee in 2019. And he closed out a one-run game on a Sunday to beat Florida State and, and get Tech a sweep. In their house, and, yeah. And it was just, it was fastball, breaking ball, and, and they just could not catch up to him and so i don't know if it's that if small man complex he just goes out there and he's a bulldog but whatever it is attitude and and the way he attacks hitters and so i think by the end of the season 
there's a lot of people that are going to know the name Andrew Devine. I love that, George. I do. And I'm glad you brought up Tallahassee last year because he was an absolute sniper that weekend. And the weekend prior yeah. to that, I think he had been very good or the weekend or two. I guess it was that with the weekend prior to that in Round Rock. And he might have been one of the guys that pitched in that Houston win, which was an extra inning ball game. And just, you know, pitching on high leverage settings right out of the shoot was really good. I, I tell you this, Keith, to, to answer your question, uh, and I had said this to a lot of people coming out of last spring, not even not not even as a function of fall ball, but coming out of last spring. And I'm either the last game or the next to last game that Tech played was in Biloxi. Of course, the last two games were in Biloxi against Mississippi State again in front of six thousand fans in a really high end type setting for that 2020 team, and it was a loss. But Hunter Dobbins didn't have his best stuff and kept us in the ball game against that really really good Mississippi State team. And he was the guy I was walking around for the last year yeah. going, man, I expect big things from Dobbins yeah. Yeah. In this spring. And so that's why it's so disappointing to see the, the news of him getting injured. And Chris Lovell had asked me that yesterday in a radio interview that, you know, if the Dobbins injury had come sooner would have had affected perhaps the Big 12 coaches opinion of us in terms of our standing and, you know, as preseason favorites, you know, which was the vote that took place a couple weeks ago and and uh, or that was released a couple weeks ago tech preseason favorite to win the big 12 and i thought you know probably not because hunter hadn't pitched a lot of big 12 games you know certainly not as a freshman and then last year he was mm-hmm. we didn't play any big 12 games so i don't know how many coaches around the league knew you know were factoring hunter dobbins into their opinion of this 2021 tech team but the answer to your question with a big old asterisk next next to it is is hunter dobbins and obviously hunter's gonna miss the year yeah and, and gus he was one of mine as well that i had thought about along with conley and and a guy that i looked forward to surprising folks and i knew that yep. his velo had worked up and i know I, you know we all we know him we love his personality he seems like a great leader on that team he's a little bit older you know just a, a kid that has it together right now and has a lot of bright future ahead of him i'd heard you know through the grapevine there were some high draft board kind of positions for him and a great potential and not that that's all gone it just set back by 18 months now and he has a road ahead of him to figure some things out and work on but uh, yeah that one's disappointing it hits a little hard you know kind of personally and as far as the team and i think the team is plenty deep. I'm not saying you just lost Stephen Gingery, you know, but I, I think that it's a big loss and definitely a guy that I think we all felt like would be in the rotation and was going to bring a lot of really good things and have a great season for himself too. So that one's frustrating for sure. Yeah, I, I think he was going to carry a key innings load and, you know, maybe maybe even have a Killian type role within this pitching staff from a couple of years ago. So yeah. It is what it is, but uh, I know I cer- certainly wish him well and his with the surgery and the rehab. And if if things work out that he's back here in twenty twenty two, that would be great and healthy. And yep. you know, this time next year he would be on the verge of getting his diploma and being healthy and hopefully having a productive year and walking out of here with an opportunity to have a healthy arm and a diploma in his back pocket and an opportunity to go pitch professionally would be great and and again that may come this year who knows right well and i love that because george's picks for new facilities and gus's pitch for hunter dobbins to come back to texas tech all right here in the pocket is good (laughs) shoot your shot yeah while we're at it let's do that with becker and burstowski because all three of those guys are draft eligible exactly may may have a team want to roll the dice on a guy mid-rehab I'm with you. No, 100%. And since we're mentioning some names, I'll mention three more, and then we'll move on and talk schedule a little bit. There's three guys that people may know, especially if you really pay a lot of attention to stuff, and you can find information about all this on redraiderdugout.com. One recruit that was pretty highly heralded, potential two-way guy, Dalton Beck, he did not stay with the team through the fall, so that he's not around if you're wondering why we're not talking about him. Brandon Hendricks, a guy that you saw pitch last year as a freshman. He's had a big Sandy. He had a six ERA. He only had about six innings pitched, but a good strikeout-to-walk ratio. He's moved on from the Red Raiders. And then his brother was one coming in from San Jack that George had paid attention to, and, and we were looking forward to seeing Austin Hendricks, and he did not make it to campus either. So Dalton Beck, Brandon Hendricks, Austin Hendricks, three names you won't see again. But if you're wondering why we're not talking about them, that's why. So – Let's jump in and talk a little bit about Arlington. We've got a schedule up on redraiderdugout.com. Of course, you can find lots of information about what's going on with this. There's a ticket link there. I hate to break it to you Red Raider baseball fans out there, but the only way to watch this thing is to go buy yourself another month's worth of Flow Baseball. 
and uh, I don't remember how much it was, 30 or 50 bucks or something, but <laughs> at the very least, it's going to be worth it because there's six top 10 teams in this thing. The Red Raiders will play number eight Arkansas on Friday, February 19th. They'll face number six Ole Miss. Red Raiders are the road team in that one on Saturday the 20th, and then number seven Mississippi State on Sunday the 21st. All of that's at Globe Life Field in the new Rangers ballpark and something we've been looking forward to for a long time. There was a point there, especially uh, you know, kind of late March, early April, where we wondered if this wouldn't be first competitive baseball in Globe Life Field, but you ended up with an MLB season and the stinking World Series got played there. So Gus, you've been to the ballpark. Tell us your thoughts about what it looked like when you got to go to some World Series games, and then let's talk about these teams a little bit. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually the NLCS, I oh, believe. Oh, that's right, it, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it was Dodgers-Braves, or whatever that was, NLD, uh, whatever it was. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was a socially distanced ballpark, which meant that so, sort of clusters of seats, they had great big zip ties to them, and you weren't going to sit there, and then there was a cluster of seats open, and that was all the way up into the upper deck and all throughout the place. And so we were... Spread out, much as you're seeing with if you see a basketball game, the crowds at, at Tech basketball games. But, you know, the, the feeling I got, and our seats were upper deck out toward right field, the feeling I got just from up there and the magnitude of the ballpark is it really reminded me a lot of Minute Maid and the, the night we were there. Shocking. Uh, that, that's, yeah, <laughs> that really is a, a first first impression. But And, and a lot of it has to do with, uh, and the night we were there, the, the roof was open, which it was a pleasant fall you know evening, so that was great. But um, and I'm sure that was helpful with the COVID scenario and everything else to get, you know, to be open air. But one of the key things, uh, the, the reason why I would say that, you know, as opposed to maybe like Bush Stadium, which is a stadium I'm pretty familiar with going to Cardinals games most summer, then no roof, retractable or permanent, you know, you're used to seeing any, everything above you is open sky, whereas like Minute Maid, there's a lot of apparatus and just a lot of stuff overhead, you know, at, at Arlington. Cool concourse, big wide concourse. You, you can see the field from all around it. And again, in, in that respect, it's a lot like Minute Maid. If you're in line at a concession stand, you can turn around and see the field. You may not be able to see all the field, you know, and, and, and just chock full of all the amenities that you would expect from a new stadium. And, you know, tactically, one of the interesting things is it may be the smallest, and you might have gotten this just from the Rangers broadcast last year, but it's got, I think, the smallest area behind home plate from from behind home plate to the backstop which is very similar to our ballpark we're one of the very few that doesn't have 60 feet from the back of home plate to the fence back there to the backstop we're at like 45 i think or 35 or something so you know in, in a sense could that come into play yes it possibly could especially on a wild pitch involving a play at the plate it usually doesn't matter much on wild pitches with the runners advancing the second and third but it may be something that we're used to that some of these other teams aren't but it's a beautiful ballpark, and as you know from watching Rangers games, the the players and even Josh Young mentioned this last week during the inter squads, just standing around chatting that the players all feel like this ballpark in Arlington plays big, and so we'll see. Well, hopefully the Red Raider hitters can make it look small, and the Red Raider pitchers can make it look big. I'd heard some complaints about it playing big, and Joey Gallo complaining about that, which is impressive. I don't know how big a ballpark yeah. plays if you just strike out, so. Um, <laughs> but little sorry, little Rangers sadness and shade there. Reverberates more on a strikeout. Yeah, that's right. We got to wrap this thing up here pretty quick, guys. But this is a huge weekend to open the season with. And as a fan, you look at it and it's a little terrifying. It's a little bit intimidating to think, man, that's some top level competition to walk into week one. I mean, this isn't Houston Baptist who in Northern Colorado, which you are going to see Houston Baptist in your home opener the next weekend, but. What's the benefit here? I mean, I feel like it'll be fairly level playing field. The Red Raiders certainly have a chance to make some noise in playing this thing. It doesn't hurt your RPI, you know, walking in and playing top level teams here early. So just break it down from that standpoint. You know, sure. what does this do for you? And and maybe put some fans at ease as far as hey, a loss in this thing, couple losses in this thing is okay. This is all high level. Sure, I'll, I'll go first on that. I think it's it's a national stage. What you want for your program. Tim and those guys want this because it's the kind of thing you can recruit to, certainly with this being played in the Metroplex where so many of our kids are from. It's as good a stage as there is in college baseball next weekend. And uh, it's the kind of thing you can recruit to, getting to play, take our show to, you know, Round Rock last year and Frisco a couple years ago and now DFW, Arlington and Houston. Those kind of things are important. 
uh, even at UTSA a couple years ago. So that that's always important. But to play on this stage in front with this kind of competition is a nice measuring stick. It would be perhaps more meaningful into what kind of team you're going to be if it was played three or four weeks in, you right. know, when th- roles that really start to settle in and all that versus it being on open weekend. And I'm glad Arlington doesn't come in and try to compete with Houston, you know, and, and pit their tournament opposite each other. These two should complement each other. And in, in the state of Texas college baseball calendar, the thing I've said on the radio a few times with level and Dickens and those guys is that regardless of what happens, whether it's really good or really bad, everyone needs to take a deep breath because they're not, we're not going to get to host because we go down there and play well next weekend, nor are they going to tell us which hotel we're in in Omaha. You know, they're, they're not going to do that. Nor if you go down there and go, Oh, and three and stink it up as your season done. It's just, and, and I think that's a perspective that, you know, and, and probably very few of the fans will have that, but I think it's a very important perspective for all six of these teams because they're all six capable of being really good teams in, in June when it really matters, you know, it'd be interesting to see how many of these teams are right back at it in Omaha later on, or maybe even squaring off in postseason play at some point, but uh, it's a tremendous opportunity. And that's an interesting point, Gus. And I think an important one that everybody just let's go ahead. Now let's get into the baseball season mentality. There's still 51 games on the schedule, so it's not way reduced from normal. Every game matters, but doesn't, make or break your season, you know, and so it, the perspective is still going to be okay that this is still a long season sport and that it's going to be all right if there's some losses and bumps along the way. And that's the other thing. And I fall into it all the time. The expectations and the hopes are so high every year that it feels high stakes no matter what. And so this is your, your big chance, your big opportunity right here. But this team is, has paid their dues and built those, perspectives already and so go in there and compete and learn about yourself and grow a little bit and george i know you want to talk too so i'll jump out of your way no i i would echo what gus said i think the goal for tech will be exactly what tim always says just go in there and let the game play out as as it does going into this thing i thought obviously this would be a good chance for each team to kind of measure where they are against fellow college world series caliber teams but given the weather and how it's kind of stunted maybe some of the team's preparation for the season, I'm backing off of that a little bit. I still think the one thing we're going to figure out out of this tournament is who has the pitching. It's, the way that the weather is played with everybody, you're going to be have to use your whole staff if you're going to have a chance to win all three of these games. And that goes for all six teams in it. So I think we'll see which teams are going to have, at least early on, the kind of pitching depth that it's going to take to win a regional, to win a super regional, to make it through to Omaha. But at the same time, like Gus said, this is not a make or break. You know, the season's not going to crash if you go 0-3, you know, you're in there, and they're not going to make your hotel reservations if you go 3-0. I just for, you know, all the teams to go out and play some good solid baseball and, and kind of get their feet wet and get a good start to the season, whether it's well, you, you can go zero and three and still have a good start to the season. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, you know, with, with the competition like this ton to learn about the team and, and let some things shake out and some guys find spots and some of that. So last thing, guys, 51 games on the schedule. As I said, you can go to redraiderdugout.com, got a schedule up for you. There's broadcast information. George did a fantastic job. He's got a snapshot of every Big 12 team. Those are linked through on the schedule as well. Ton of information about last year, about this year, projected lineups, all that kind of stuff. And thank you, George. That was, that was awesome work. Yep. But just jumping and looking through – you know, we got a few more non-cons than we thought we might. We got a little bit of midweek action. You've got a non-con with OU in Amarillo at Hodgetown where the Sod Poodles play. Just pick one out of there or, or just your general thoughts. What are you excited about looking at this schedule? And for me, that's I'm glad that it's not 40 games and that it's 51 and, and we're still looking at most of a season. My excitement is that, that Arlington and Minute Maid are going to happen. I mean, again, knock on wood. Well, with all the certainty, we can say anything these days. But I think that's great. You know, the Arlington thing's probably got a bigger place in people's hearts because it's it's going to be the vast majority of Tech fans, really probably all of college baseball fans that are going to attend next week. It's going to be their first time ever to step into that brand-new ballpark. And, you know, that's an interesting ballpark, too, because I talked about this with Kyle Rogers, the realtor, but the, uh, the curbside appeal of it, it's not that pretty of a park from the street, but when you walk in, it's really nice. And, and uh, so it'll be interesting to get everyone's perspectives on it. But 
So it only looks uh, like know, a gas grill on the outside, not a on little the inside. Bit, yeah, a little bit. And then you get inside, <laughs> and, and you get inside, and it takes on a different different level. So sure. Um, but I, I think those two pro park weekends are always great because you see a lot of opponents, a lot of opponents see you, and then but then the Hodgetown thing I think is great because it, it too. I hope a lot of fans from Lubbock will take the opportunity to get up there and see that game because if you haven't seen a Sod Poodles game, they've got a cool thing going with their ballpark in downtown Amarillo. It's a neat setting, and I think you know tickets are going to go on sale for that this week, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that game sell out in a hurry, really. Yeah. Yeah, I like Gus. I'm looking forward to Minute Maid in Arlington, but I think one series that or one part of the schedule that really I'm intrigued by is the UConn series. That's a four-game series before conference play starts and you hear UConn it's like oh UConn's a northern team and won't be that good this is a really pretty good UConn team coming in that's got some really good talent they've gotten a couple of transfers from some from an ACC school uh, I think from an SEC school you know and so this is going to be a real quality opponent for the Red Raiders to play four games before opening Big 12 conference play and so I think that one really kind of intrigues me and I, and I think if fans want to try to get out to a game get out to a series those are going to be some really good games between two teams that have obviously regional aspirations and I think UConn could be a team that you know standing at the end of the season could surprise a lot of people so I, that's that's one of the season that's, that's a series that I'm a little that's a good one George yeah the, the UConn you think about in 2018-2019 I believe they lost in the finals of their regional both times yeah. and in 2019 you know we play Oklahoma State in the Super Regional OSU beat UConn that's who they played to beat to get to to the Lubbock Super Regional yeah. you know and and that's how good they are that's the program that brought us George Springer as well now that's going back a decade or so but uh, what they've done is you know impressive and they've really I think the case can be made that they're the best program in the Northeast. And uh, I was about to and, say, they're a Big East favorite yeah. for sure. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and if uh, you haven't listened to my interview with, with Mike Rooney, go back and do that, folks. And we talked about UConn. That was the specific question I had for him. And if you listen to the D1 Baseball podcast, that was something they talked about at length, about that team, not about this series previously. But, yeah, they're a team looking to make some noise, a good program that's been building over the years. And, yeah, I'm excited about that one too. And then you turn around after the UConn, and you welcome in an Oklahoma State team that that will be the first conference opponent you've played against since that Super Regional. Absolutely. Well, guys, final thoughts. I mean, as I look through the schedule and as far as the Shriners College Classic, that one's changed a little bit. So you got Texas State, Sam Houston State, and Texas A&M Corpus Christi Islanders in that one. Texas A&M was originally in that one, and they pulled themselves out. They're playing the Aggie Bowl at Bluebell Park. They've got New Mexico State coming in. But I think that they're both going to be exciting and great weekends, and there's a lot of good baseball to come. And it seems like, at least the way things have gone in other sports, Texas Tech has done a good job mitigating COVID and figuring out how to deal with it. And, you know, cancellations are generally coming from the other side. So hopefully everybody can keep their stuff together and we can get a baseball season under our belts. Yeah, I agree. That's a million-dollar question, really, with COVID and just how COVID is going to affect things. As much as it's affected college basketball, you'd think baseball is going to be affected that way as well. The, the, the problematic thing will be the way the bas- baseball schedule sets up as opposed to basketball. There's not really built-in buffer opportunities. In other words, if hypothetically UConn couldn't come here that week because of a bunch of COVID, either from us or them, that type of thing doesn't get squeezed back in in May. It's just gone. And so right. uh, hopefully we don't have empty weekends stuck in at, the, at any point along the way. And I know the coaches have devoted a lot of attention to when you step into that dugout, coming off the field or whatever, the masks go on, you know, right. uh, that and that type of stuff. And then encouraging those guys to really be careful because typically how that works, a lot of these guys live together. So if one of the four guys gets sick, the other three are instantly contacts because they're in there. They live under the same roof and sitting on the same couch and, you know, drinking out of the same dishes and all that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's, <laughs> it becomes a real thing. And, and that's not a challenge unique to Texas tech. It's a challenge that's, you know, everyone's dealing with, but I just hope that hope it gets managed as, as best you can expect our coaches and just the, a room full of 20 year olds to, <laughs> to deal with it. Right. Parting shots, George. I'm with Gus. I'm just glad we're to a point where we can talk about looking forward to games that, like you said, after an 11th month winter. So, uh, yeah, yeah. just just being able to get to a point where we can we can talk about games and and have the potential games and and in in some form or fashion be sitting out there 
in the part after everything we've gone through with football and, and basketball. So I'm just looking forward to being able to get out into the park and, and watch some ball. So it's uh, it's been a long 11 months, but and it couldn't get here fast enough, and, and it still can. I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. I agree with you, and I appreciate you guys for your time. And there's still lots of unknown, unknown about tickets, unknown about where we'll be or how we'll be watching it, but we'll be definitely be watching it. And thank you all for joining in. I know that it's been a long road for all of you, too, and we're glad to be back. If you haven't checked out RedRaiderDugout.com yet, please go do that. We're very excited about what's going on there, and I want to say thanks to you guys, too, to George and Gus for helping make it happen and for contributing to it. And the amount of work you put in is awesome so far, and I know that there's going to be a lot more on that site we're looking forward to. So appreciate y'all for Gus and George. Thank you for your time, guys. I'm Keith Patrick. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll be back in your feed soon. And until then, wreck them. Thanks for tuning in to Dinger Derby and sharing our love for Texas Tech Red Raider baseball. You can connect with Keith on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Red Raider Dugout. And find more great tech baseball coverage at RedRaiderDugout.com. Help us out by rating us and leaving a review on iTunes. And remember to tell your friends about the show. Keith will be back soon with another episode of Dinger Derby. And until then, wreck em tech. Keep your hand on your gun. Don't you trust anyone. There's just one kind of man that you can trust That's a dead man or a gringo like me Be the first one to fire Every man is a liar There's just one kind of man who tells the truth That's a dead man or a gringo like me 